God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon you. Like get on, get on your mind with what that means. When you consider your own dysfunction, your own sin, and to think that you are pardoned, um, not by the way of, of God sweeping your sin under the rug or acting like it didn't happen, but actually looking at Jesus, putting the full weight of your sin on him, and then looking at you and pardoning you for your sin. Is that not good news? Does that not stir something in your heart to think that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the one that never, deceit wasn't even in his mouth, mouth, but yet the father looks on him and then completely pardons us. Good morning, Epiph. How we doing this morning? Come on, how we doing this morning? Good, good. It's real good to be here. Uh, thankful for another day that the Lord has given us. Every day God gives us is just an extension of, of sheer grace, just an extension of his kindness and his mercy to us. He didn't owe you a day. He didn't look, wake up and say, you know what, let me give this one another day. Um, you know, he did good yesterday, so let me give him. You no, know, the fact that you woke up is nothing but his grace and nothing but his mercy. And so I'm, I'm thankful this morning that we get together. Uh, let me give a shout out as well to all the guys who played football yesterday. Um, it, it was, well, some of us played football and others were just standing around on the field and acting like they were playing. Uh, my team actually won and, and I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't stand in the pulpit and say my team won if we didn't, if we didn't win. Uh, we, we, we won. So um, thankful for, uh, for, for people that lost like Dell and, and, and Matt. And, and, uh, and Warner, just, just numerous people I can keep naming that just lost. Um, no, seriously, we, we're excited. I'm hurting, though. I'm, I, this morning, I literally had to pull my leg out of the bed and plop it down on the ground. I had to pull it out of the car. I'm, I do, I, I was, I, was uh, I realized, you know, part of the, the sinful, you know, when, when Adam and Eve fell in, in Genesis chapter 3, you know, I always got to bring this back to Scripture. When, when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3, one of the things that also fell with that is, is our, our bodies now can, de, you know, can, can start to, to break down and be tired and, and is exposed to, when it's exposed to too much, a muscle will hurt. I, I love the way um, our, the president of our, our network, Acts 29, Matt Chandler says, you know you're getting old when you, you hurt yourself sleeping. Like you used to get hurt playing stuff. Now it's like you wake up and it's like, ah, man, I can't even move my neck, but I'm um, thankful. And you know what was the, the most beautiful part of yesterday was not just that we got together to, to play some sports, but uh, that we actually had time in the Word. Uh, Gabe walked us through Ephesians 6 and talked to us about spiritual warfare. And, um, and, and then Dale walked us through Proverbs chapter 2 and talked to us about being, being godly men. And, and I'm just grateful for uh, for brothers that are serious, growing, right? I, I'm just like so amazed when I looked at, when I watched Dell yesterday walk, walk through Proverbs 2 and even Gabe, I, my heart was jumping because we got to see, you know, men that are growing, that are serious and, uh, about engaging other men, but serious about their personal walk with the Lord. And I'm just thankful for all of them. Uh, listen, let's jump right in. Uh, Jonah chapter four is where we're gonna be today. Jonah four, uh, we've been walking through the book of Jonah as you turn there, let, let me just also uh, put that announcement out there that Gabe said that we are having our, um, our covenant community class immediately following service, but we'll give it a little bit of a break and then we'll jump right in right here in this room. And, you know, this is a time for us to walk through the vision, the core values, our beliefs as a church, 
um, you know, financial aspect of our church. How does that, you know, how, how does that, what, what do we do with the resources of this church? And then uh, to be able to walk you through what we expect from you as members. And then uh, me as the, as the pastor of this church, lead pastor of this church, I get to tell you what uh, you can expect from me. You should have an expectation of me as well. And so we'll get to walk through those. All right, Jonah 4. We've been, uh, we've been going through a series on the book of Jonah, literally line by line, verse by verse, we've been trying to go through. We, we are ending the series today. We're going to go through the entire, um, the entire chapter 4, all 11 verses. And, and I'm excited. I don't know. I mean, there's a few people that have come to me and over the course of this series and talk to me about how it's been impactful for you. Has, it been, has Jonah been impactful for anybody in this room? I know for me, uh, the Lord has really used it in a profound way to strengthen my walk with the Lord. Um, but the, the best part, the, the most convicting part, I should say, not even best, the most convicting was this week in chapter four. Uh, the Lord really got at me about, and I didn't even expect it, um, but as I was prepping and praying and thinking about what our time will look like today, the Lord was really challenging me because I realized today or earlier this week that I have a very narrow view of God's grace. And most of us in here understand God's grace. Uh, we can theologize it. We can talk about it. We know it from an information standpoint, but most of us will not understand God's grace until we are able to understand that it's extended to people that you don't even like. It's extended to people that you don't even think deserve it. And that is what we're going to see in our text today. So I'll read it and uh, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Jonah chapter four says this, verse number one. Actually, I'm going to read just for context purposes. I'm going to read uh, verse 10 of chapter three, and then I'm just going to let it flow right into chapter four. If verse 10 is not up there, it's okay. Uh, verse 10 of chapter three says this, when God saw what they had did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Listen to this. For I knew, circle this phrase, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for him there. He sat under the shade till he should see what happened to uh, what would become of the city. Verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the, sun, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. I don't know if y'all are picking this up, but Jonah actually wants to die. I mean, he, over and over again, like he, this, this dude really wants to die. Verse number nine, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? 
Listen to Jonah's foolish answer. He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity the pity Nineveh, the great city for which, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I want to preach from the topic entitled Man's Response to God's Grace. Man's Response to God's Grace. Let us pray. Father, this morning we gather to be challenged by your word. Uh, not just challenged, but we also gather to be encouraged by your word as, re- as well. Father, you've been faithful to meet us every single week throughout this series and beyond. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us again today. We recognize and realize that we can't, uh, we cannot breathe without your spirit. We can't think, we can't comprehend your scriptures. We can't hear, I can't preach without your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray today that you would meet us in this room. And Father, let us not just walk away and say that was a cute story, but let us walk away and say, man, I want to love Jesus more because of this story. I want to understand the grace and the compassion that God has shown us through the cross of Jesus Christ through this story. Father, would you reveal that to us today? Father, would you stretch our understanding of what grace is? Uh, many of us in this room, I think we could, if you ask and, we, uh, and someone presses us on what grace is, I, I think we could tell you what grace is, but the, realistically, how does it flesh itself out in our work? And Lord, I pray, oh God, that you would do a work in this room and convict our hearts, but also encourage us. Only you can do that. Break us down and build us back up through your word. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Uh, September 2011, I, I set off on a quest to, um, to start my pastoral church planting residency in Philadelphia. I was under the tutelage of Dr. Eric Mason, uh, my spiritual father, pastor, who walked me through what it looked like to plant a church, and in the midst of that process, he the, the first thing he did was set me down and put me on a on a on a strict reading regimen. And this reading regimen consisted of of books on different topics. So it was topics like leadership development. He saw some things. He's like, "Man, you need some leadership development." Here's about five books on leadership development. He walked me through books on pastoral development and character development. How many know that character is a big? It plays. I mean, you can be as gifted as possible, but your gifts doesn't keep you. Your your character uh, will. I don't care how gifted you are. It's not enough character to override a bad character. I mean, not enough gifting to override bad character. And so he walked me through different books. And one of the books he gave me was on my spiritual formation as well, my walk with the Lord. And he gave me a book, or he told me to get a book that's called What's So Amazing by Grace by Philip Yancey. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but the book is really a scandalous book in many ways. It, it, turned, it coined the phrase, scandal of grace. And in many ways, it talks about how God saves even the worst of people. It opens up with a really provocative story about a, uh, a lady that was a prostitute and she figured out, this is how the book opens, she figured out that she could make more money in one hour selling her toddler daughter than she could make all night on the corner. True story. And so this lady continued to do this, sell her daughter over and over again for a period of time until she ran into some Christians 
some Jesus lovers. And these Christians were a little bit different than she's ever uh, encountered. These Christians actually confronted her with grace and not judgment, confronted her with compassion and didn't condemn her. And they walked her through what the gospel meant and they walked her through the concept of what grace was. And at the end of their conversation, they invited her to church. They said, why don't you come with us to church? To which she responded, church? Why would I ever go to church? You guys are nice, but why would I go to church? I would feel worse than I already feel now. True response. Now, her diagnosis of church in many ways is legit because church and Christians has, has become known for graceless places, right? We, we, we accept grace, but we don't extend grace. John chapter one, verse number four talks about this when it, it talks about Jesus. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. Listen to what Jesus was, full of grace and full of truth. Our savior, Jesus Christ is full of grace. Think about this. Christianity hinges on that one word, grace. You're not saved by works. You're not, you don't earn works. We are simply saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. So we're saved by grace, but yet we don't want to extend it to others. Two more verses in John, uh, two more verses later in John, it, it then goes on to say this about Christ. It says, and from his fullness, Christ, we have received grace upon grace. The idea is like going down to the beach and watching the waves. I don't know if you've been down to the beach lately and you watch the waves come in. You typically don't see a long pause between the waves. You typically don't see the waves stop. But what do you see? Wave upon wave. If you write your name in the sand, I don't know if you've ever done that in the wet sand, write your name and watch a wave hit it and just take it out. That is what grace is like. Grace doesn't stop. It's grace upon grace wave upon wave. And the scripture tells us in John chapter one that Jesus Christ, when he came in his fullness, that is what he brought. He brought grace upon grace. Unfortunately, his followers, like Jonah, do not want to extend grace upon grace, but we want to extend judgment upon judgment. We want to extend wrath upon wrath. Yet Jesus Christ did not come and do that. He embodied, in many ways, Christ embodied what a grace-driven life looked like. Look at places like Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is allowing a prostitute to kiss his feet, his holy feet, and wipe his holy feet with her dirty hair. And everyone's sitting in the room going, why is the Messiah allowing this? Why is he letting her do this? And yet, what does Jesus say? He doesn't even just say her sins are forgiven. Watch the grace. He says her sins, which are many, are forgiven. That's grace. And most of us in this room, if you've trusted in Jesus in any way, you have received grace. Grace has the ability to reach the furthest person. And it also has the ability to reach us. And, and if you need to understand grace, look no further than the fact that you're saved. Like if you really want to understand grace, think about your own dysfunction, think about your own sin, and you'll come to grips with the fact that God is a gracious God. Because no one sits in here in a privileged position and thinks, yeah, he should have brought me on a team. No, we were a wretch undone. God swooped down from heaven and said, I want her. 
Despite your dysfunction, despite your triflingness, despite your sin, Jesus brought you on the team if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's what grace is. And so we have a prophet of Israel here not willing to extend the grace that he has received. And many of us in this room, if we're honest, like get that one person, as we're walking through the scriptures, get on your mind that one person that if God started to do a work in their life, you'd be upset. I know we won't admit it. We won't say it. We won't push it out there. But it's truth. If, if God started to bless them and not you, we'd be upset. And that is what Jonah is. Unfortunately, I think we forget that we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What we get is spiritual amnesia. We get saved and we get short-term memory loss. We forget that we were a wretch undone and that Christ came to save us. And so Epiphany, listen to me, as we walk through the scriptures, we must understand that God is going to save people that do not look like you. He's going to save people that in your mind, you think they're far off. Man, the best day for me would be if somebody walked in here with liquor still on their breath. What would that look like? If they walked in here and their skirt was too short and we didn't condemn them, but we allowed them to come on in and hear the gospel message of Christ. So I personally want to, I want to walk through what the scriptures talk about as it relates to grace. Last week, we, we were picking this up off of the heels of the fact that all of Nineveh was saved last week. All of Nineveh was saved. The scripture ends today and tells us that it's 120,000 people get saved Now, think on your mind. I think we read that and we just run over it. Like many commentators will say, this is the greatest revival in the history of mankind. 120,000 people are saved off an eight-word sermon. Eight words is all that Jonah preaches when he gets to Nineveh. He walks into the city of Nineveh. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not a nice, this wasn't a prosperity sermon. This wasn't a health and wealth sermon. He didn't call a thousand dollar line. He simply said, if you don't get it right, this city will be overturned. And everybody in the city gets saved, including the cows. If you're a dog lover, if you're a cat lover in here and you're looking for a text that, you know, your little chihuahua was going to make it into heaven, you might, you might got something here in chapter three that animals put on sackcloth. The animals are put on a fast. And so what we see here is the power of God. Nineveh didn't repent because Jonah was some charismatic preacher. Nineveh repented because of the content. It was a word from the Lord. And because of a word from the Lord, 120,000 people repent of their violence. Now, consider this, 120,000 people. If you read places like Luke chapter 15, where Jesus is walking through the parable of the coin, the, the lost sheep and the prodigal son, Jesus says, hear this, all of heaven rejoices over one sinner repenting. Here you have 120,000 thousand sinners repenting. All of heaven in this moment is rejoicing. But what is our boy Jonah doing? Our boy Jonah is angry. Scripture tells us that this displeased him exceedingly. And so I want to walk through why that is. And I pray that you wouldn't disconnect your own life from the text today. Don't read Jonah today and say, man, that was Jonah. No, read the text and say, that could be me. I had to read the text the same way. Verse number one, 
This is after Jonah has witnessed all of Nineveh repenting. This is what verse number one says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. So Jonah witnesses all of Nineveh trust in the Lord, repent of their violence. And the scripture tells us that Jonah is exceedingly angry. Now, now this word angry here in the Hebrew means hot. It means burn. He, like Jonah is upset. Jonah is pissed off. He's not happy at the fact that they were saved. But the question on the table is, why is Jonah so angry? Why is Jonah angry? Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And I've told you guys week after week that Assyria was known for being a violent, wicked city. What I didn't tell you over the last few weeks was that Nineveh wasn't just a wicked city, but they were enemies to Israel. And so what you have here now is Israel's enemy. Now keep in mind, Jonah is a prophet from Israel and Israel's enemy is now about to be saved and the tool that God uses is Jonah. And so Jonah doesn't, he can't fathom the fact that his enemies are now about to trust in the one that he's trusting. Jonah clearly speaks to God out of anger. Scripture tells us he's angry. Verse number two says that he prays. So that means that Jonah is speaking to God out of anger. Now, I don't know what kind of household you grew up in, but I didn't grow up in the household that I could speak to my parents out of anger. I know, you know, some of y'all have like the timeout, you know, you'll, you know, you grew up where your parents let you go on timeout. I didn't have timeout. If it was timeout, I got knocked out. That, that's the house I grew up in. You know, my parents cared nothing about, you know, let me let him express himself. No, no, you don't express yourself out of anger. I, I had to uh, express myself when I wasn't angry and talk through what my issue was. And sometimes they didn't even let me do that. It was, no, be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. And that is how I grew up. Now, now I, I know in this new age, I went to the store not too long ago, Associates in, uh, in Park Slope, and this little girl was falling out right at the, at the counter because she wanted a piece of candy, wanted a candy bar. She was falling out, and her mother literally stepped over her and paid for the food and said, oh, little Susie would be okay. And I'm like, I've never seen that before. Like, I wasn't allowed to do that. But yet, God allows Jonah to speak to him out of anger. The God that has created the universe, if you were here on our Bible study on Wednesday, we went through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're talking Elohim, which means the great one. In the beginning, God, the big one, the one that is transcendent and high above us, allows creation to talk to him out of anger. Now, now let, let me just push this to you. Anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. There's a verse that is tucked away in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 26, that says, be angry and sin not. And so anger is not a sin. I mean, the very attribute of God is, one of the attributes of God is wrath. And so if anger is a sin, then God is not holy because God is sinful. Because God's attribute, one of them is wrath. Let me take it a step further. If anger was a sin, then Jesus Christ is a sinner. Where am I getting that from? You remember in Matthew 21 when he walked into the temple and overturned the tables? Now, now in that moment, the, the scripture doesn't explicitly, explicitly say that he was angry, but I think that we can gather from Matthew 21, from his conduct, from his behavior, that he was angry. I mean, it'd be kind of weird for Jesus to be flipping over tables with a smile. 
But he didn't do that. He flipped over tables. He was angry at how they were treating the Lord's house. And I think it's clear we can gather from that 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 Christ was angry. So anger itself is not a sin. But I'm amazed at the fact that God allows this Jonah, this prophet that was disobedient, he allows him to speak to him out of anger and, and his anger. Now, God, now he doesn't question his anger. He does question the validity of his anger when he says, do you do well to be angry? So he questions what he's angry about. And even in questioning his anger, what he's getting at is a deeper issue within his, uh, within his walk. He's getting at a deeper issue. I was trying to be, you know, can we turn the air on? It's a little hot. He, it's, it's a deeper issue that he's trying to get at. Am I the only one hot? I'm the only one preaching. Okay. All right. I get it. I get it. Um, and so let, let's continue to walk through this. So verse number one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Verse number two, now he prays and he prayed to the Lord. Keep in mind, he's still angry. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, circle this phrase, that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of disaster. Pick this up. Jonah is angry. The verse tells us because of grace. Now, Jonah, this doesn't mean that Jonah doesn't understand grace. I'll give Jonah an A plus for, for expounding on the character of God. Yes, he is a gracious God. Yes, he is abounding in steadfast love. Yes, he does relent of the disaster that he says that he will do according to chapter three of Jonah. And so we, we understand that Jonah understands grace. But what's interesting about Jonah is that Jonah understands grace as it relates to him, but he doesn't understand grace as it relates to somebody else that he doesn't think deserves grace. Like chapter two, Jonah was good. Think about it. Jonah had gotten, he, he had got uh, the grace of God lavished on him in chapter two. Remember when he's talking about out of my distress, I called to you. He cried out to the Lord out of his distress in the water and God poured out grace on him in chapter two. You don't see Jonah complaining there. Jonah's not complaining. Can you imagine Jonah in the water going, God, you're a gracious God. You're abounding in steadfast love, but don't save me. Don't show me any grace. Let me just go ahead and drown with the weeds wrapped around my head. No, Jonah doesn't do that. He understands grace in chapter two, but in chapter four, he doesn't understand it as it relates to being extended to somebody else, uh, particularly somebody else that he doesn't think deserves it. I think we all understand grace as it relates to us, and we understand grace as it relates to somebody else that we think, yeah, that person should get grace. What we don't understand it is someone who is far off. So I don't know if that's a family member. I don't know if that's a husband. I don't know if that's a wife that you don't want grace extended to. I don't know if it's a coworker, somebody that did you wrong. But if we understand this text right, grace isn't just for you, but it's for the one who did you wrong too. See, that's a hard pill for us to swallow. And so Jonah did, he wanted to see the downfall of Nineveh just to satisfy his own thought of what justice actually looked like. So Jonah didn't want to extend it to them. Okay, let me, let, let, let's, let's, let's put this on you. Consider in your mind that person I said, if God really was to extend grace and bless that person way beyond how he's blessing you, would you be upset? 
So if it's that husband that did leave you or that wife that did leave you or that wife that did you wrong or that husband that did you wrong, that friend that did you wrong, if it's that person, what would it look like for us to extend grace to them? Many of us would be happy at the fact that God pours out his wrath on our enemies. That's a carnal way of thinking. It's not a godly way of thinking. And I pray that we, you would press that and feel that in your heart. Let me ask this question. It's a very rhetorical question. Don't answer the question. How many of us in this room actually get joyful and happy when something bad happens to a person that we think it should happen to? I'm not talking like a car accident. I'm not talking like death. I'm just saying what they're working on just doesn't work out and we're happy. Like, be honest. How many of us in this room would rather see the downfall of the people we don't like than actually to see grace extended to him? We are Jonah. You're Jonah in this text. And Jonah clearly does not think that this violent city deserves God's grace. How is it that we want grace for ourselves, but we want wrath extended for other people? I'll tell you why. Because we live in a society that is based on earnings. It's called meritocracy. We live in a meritocracy society, a society that says the harder you grind, the more you work, the more you deserve and the more you earn. Let, let me see if I can make this a little plain. I, many of you wouldn't be surprised to find out that I'm actually, I'm a gold star member at Starbucks. And you wouldn't be surprised at that, right? I, I mean, I have reached gold status with Starbucks, which means, and their program is actually called Rewards. It's a meritocracy society. And so I didn't get gold status because I asked for it. I didn't get gold status because it's some type of pastoral discount that they gave me. I didn't walk up to the counter and say, can I have a gold star? No, I got gold star status. Here it is because I earned it because I've spent enough money. The whole system is based upon what I bring to the table. The problem with a meritocracy society is it doesn't work in the kingdom. It, grace pushes against our society thoughts of what meritocracy means. See, meritocracy means you earn, you get what you earn. Grace says you get what you don't deserve. Grace said you can't earn it. You can't work hard enough. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't do it. So we are living in a meritocracy society. However, we're a culture within a culture. We must live by the principles of the kingdom, which is grace, which is grace. And Jonah thought that, that Nineveh deserved destruction. He did not think that Nineveh deserved. He's upset that Nineveh, and, and think of children are probably in Nineveh. and He wanted all of them. He wanted all of them dead. And so this is the second time that we see Jonah pray. Verse number two says that he prayed to the Lord. This is the second time we see him pray. Now this time is a lot different than the first time. The first time we saw Jonah pray, Jonah's prayer and content was different because it was grace for him. But now he's praying and he's upset about the grace extended to someone, to someone else. The closest thought, as we think about Nineveh, the closest thought that we have on, the, on a violent city like Nineveh is ISIS. Closest thought we have on it. Consider ISIS being saved right now. Now that pushes against our, we live in a meritocracy society that literally sells t-shirts that say, never forget 9-11. Now I don't mean to sound unpatriotic, but I don't, I never pray that ISIS would die. I pray that God would save them. 
Imagine if our churches get filled with ex-ISIS members. See, that pushes against our thinking. We think, no, they deserve death. But truth of the matter is, if apart from Jesus Christ, if you and I bring good to the table of a holy God and ISIS, the head of ISIS brings his filth to God, both of us will be in the same place. There's no special place for an ISIS member and you because you're good apart from Jesus. You know, Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 48 says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God doesn't want good. He wants perfection. And what we see within our meritocracy society is that we see that we want you to earn it. Goes against the very grace that's found in the gospel. Verse number three. This is interesting. Now he, he now... He's, you know, he's still praying, but he finds a way to ask. He's, he's about to request something in this prayer. He's about to make a petition now in this prayer. It's the last person that should be making a petition to the Lord. But look at what his petition is. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better that I die. Jonah, what he's doing right now is he's trying to save face. He's trying to cover his reputation. Keep in mind, this is the prophet of Israel and who was just saved was Israel's enemy. Can you imagine Jonah going back to Israel? They probably will not like him if he goes back and his enemies were saved. And so what you see now is Jonah saying, take my life. Is Jonah really saying, listen, I'm putting my reputation above the grace and the mercy of God. Why am I doing that? Because I do not want to go back because I do not want them to see me, the person who walked into Nineveh and preached a message that had my enemies repent. So I don't want to walk in. I don't want them to see me. And so his petition really is, it shows us the reputation. And that's many of us in here. How many of us have a rep? We are more concerned with our reputation than we are seeing lost people meet Jesus. Like, are you able to pray for somebody that you don't like at the expense of you looking bad? See, we don't, we don't like to look bad, and our boy Jonah doesn't like to look bad either. Now, God actually, for the first time, we're about to see him speak. He's about to, he's about to um, weigh in. He's going to cut Jonah off from his prayer in verse number four. And look at what he says. When he does speak, he does something great. He asks a question. He says in verse number four, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, let, let me just say something about questions in the Bible that God makes. When God makes a, when God asks a question in the Bible, it's always rhetorical. Like God's not in heaven like, man, is he, like, does he really do well to be angry? Like, I don't know the answer to this. God full well knows the answer to the question, but what he's, what he's doing is he's trying to reveal something to Jonah. And so whenever God asks a question, it's always for our benefit, never for his. He's not in heaven trying to figure out the answer to this. It's like when I was younger, my mother, I went through a phase where I used to sag, right? I used to pull the pants down below the butt. My mother would always ask me, why are your pants below your butt? And I want to answer, well, because I like it. You know, I like them now. Now, I wouldn't answer like that. Uh, but, but my mother wasn't asking because she didn't, like she wanted to know information, She's asking why my pants below my butt, not for a response. She's doing it to expose to me that my pants are below my butt. And when God says, do you do well to be angry? He's revealing to Jonah, you really have no reason to be angry. 
You're angry for no reason. Let's keep going because I really want to get through this verse and I'm running out of this chapter and I'm running out of time. Verse number five, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for him there. He sat under the, under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse six, and the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over him that it might give shade to him. Listen to this, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I love this. Jonah is complaining. Note how selfish he is here. Jonah is complaining about Nineveh receiving grace and God responds by giving Jonah more grace. Like he made a plant grow out of nowhere. Many people say this is a castor oil plant. It grows about 12 feet high and it has large leaves. So in the midst of the heat in Assyria or Nineveh, a plant grows up to provide shade for Jonah. This is what you call grace. God responds to Jonah's complaint by simply saying, man, I'm gonna give you more grace. And I love this because Jonah then says to the grace that's extended to him that he was exceedingly glad. The only other time we saw him say exceedingly, the, the text tell us that he was exceedingly anything was when he was exceedingly angry in verse number one. And so he's exceedingly angry at Nineveh receiving God's grace, but yet when grace is poured out on him once again, selfishly, now he's exceedingly glad. And many of us, that is what it looks like in our life as it relates to God's grace. We are, we are grace hogs. We want all of grace for ourselves and we don't want to see it extended to anybody else. And that is exactly what Jonah is doing. He doesn't even realize that I don't want grace for them, but Lord, you're making a plant grow over me. Thank you. I'm exceedingly glad. We have a misconstrued understanding of what Grace looks like, and how you respond to God's grace on others really says a lot about your spiritual maturity. You know how spiritually mature you are when you're able to pray for somebody else that you just don't like. I'm not saying you got to be in a relationship with them. I'm not saying you got to have them over at your house for dinner. What I am saying is we should want the grace of God on our enemy's life so much that it turns into a petition, that we give it to God and ask God to, we pray for that other person. Look at verses seven through nine, because verse seven through nine really picks up on something that's really broad that shows throughout the whole, the rest of the book. Verse seven through nine, it says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Verse nine, but, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. There's, there's three statements that I want you to pick up on between verses seven and through verses nine. Over and over again, the scripture has told us that God appointed. Verse number six, it says God appointed a plant. Verse number seven, it says that God appointed a worm. Verse number eight, it says that God appointed a scorching wind. And that's, that's really the theme of all of Jonah. Because if we go back to Jonah chapter one, God appointed the storm. He hurled the storm. You go back to Jonah chapter one, he oversaw the lots that were cast. Then he created this storm. He made it more tempestuous. 
when Jonah was thrown over the sea, he oversaw the storm stopping. Once he's in, then he appoints a fish. And then he tells the fish in verse number 10 of chapter two to spit Jonah up over and over and over and over again. What we see is a term called the sovereignty of our God. God is in control. Let me just put that on you this morning. If you've walked through Jonah with us and you walk away and you think that you're still in control, you're not. God is that you're not in control. God is completely in control. God is the one who oversaw all of the aspects of this Jonah series, the Jonah story. God oversaw it over and over again. I know you're like, well, I make my own decisions though. God don't make decisions for me. You're, you know what? You're actually right. Proverbs 16, 33 says that the, that, that the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is the Lord's. So you 100% make the decision. God 100%, you 100% make that decision. God 100% causes the outcome. Whatever your decision is, God has control of the outcome. He is in control. Three times we saw in our text today that God appoints. God appoints. Now the question on the table is that we have to answer before we end is, why did God a plant, a, a, a appoint a plant and then appoint a worm to eat that plant? Let's keep going. Verse number 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Here's the answer, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished at night. And should not I pity that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God providing the plant and then providing the worm really was to show Jonah, how wicked his heart is, and also to show him how gracious God is. What, what do I mean? This same Jonah's grief-filled reaction over the plant being eaten is what Jonah's response should have been over the destruction of Nineveh. So God is saying, I'm going to make this plant grow and I'm going to make a worm eat it just to show you how I feel, the anger that I feel if all of Nineveh wouldn't repent. And so Jonah now is, God is giving him a lesson here by making this plant grow. 120,000 people get saved. And Jonah is saying, listen, I'm upset about a plant. Like, consider that. Jonah's not upset about Nineveh being destroyed. Yet Jonah is upset that this plant is destroyed. Again, once again, goes to our self-absorbed nature. We, we talk about grace from a privileged position. Even though we say it's grace, we act like we earned it. No, you didn't, didn't earn any part of it. So what, what, what we see, if we understand this text right, what we see is that God is not only the God of Israel, but he's the God of Israel's oppressors. See, that, that's a hard pill for us to swallow. So let, let's put that on you. God isn't, he's not only the God of the one that was abused, but he's also the God of the one that abused, the abuser. Consider that. This is hard for me to say as, a, as an African-American man, but God is not only the God of my ancestors that were lynched, but he's also the God of the lynch mob. Like, sit on that for a second. Think in your mind, the person that did you wrong God is not, Christ didn't just die for you, 
but could he have died for the person that did you wrong? The person that you don't want to extend grace for. God is not, Christ didn't die only for the wife that was cheated on by her husband, but he also died for the husband that committed adultery. Here it is, and the side chick. Like we don't, we can't fathom how huge grace is. Yet we want to we want to receive and absorb grace like it's just for us. No, it's for the one that did you wrong too. And I want you to feel what that feels like. And so he's not the God of just the one who was done unjustly, but he's the one. He's also the God of the one who committed offense. Now I, I'm not saying that grace is the absence of justice. Like I'm not giving the abuser a pass to go free. Like th that's the beauty in God. God can extend grace and forgive you of your sin. Forgive the one that did you wrong of your sin, but the earthly consequence still remain. So the abuser needs to go to jail, but how about we pray for his salvation? How about we pray for him to meet the Lord? And so grace isn't the absence of that. But what I, what I will say is that grace doesn't leave room for vengeance. It doesn't leave room for you to get the person back. Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay who I want to repay. So we don't have to run hard to get the person back. We just simply push grace on them. We simply pray for grace to be on them. Wait a minute, pastor, are you trying to say that you actually want me to forgive the person that did me wrong? If we understand this text right, the God of Israel also was going after and pursuing a wicked city like Nineveh. Absolutely. I am saying that you also... In this room, if you've trusted in Jesus, those that did you wrong, you should be praying and seeking for the Lord to go after them. Listen, we're Jonah in the text. Don't walk away from our series. We won't be in Jonah again next week. Don't walk away from the series and simply think that I'm not Jonah. Jonah was disobedient, naturally, physically disobedient. Now in our text, like if the story ended with chapter three, If we only read chapter three and walked away, we'd be like, man, Jonah's the greatest hero. He got himself together. But what the text also shows us is that you're able to do the will of God and still have a tainted heart. It still not be right because Jonah obeys God in chapter three, but his heart is still rebellious. Could that be us in this room? That is what I had to wrestle with this morning. Now, now uh, understand something. Jonah didn't want his enemies saved. And if Christ didn't die for his enemies, none of us in this room would be saved. If Jesus Christ did not go to the cross for people who did not like him, and it's been my experience that most people before they met Jesus do not think that they were an enemy of God. But Romans is clear that while we were his enemies, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die for you. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, if you're taking notes. The ones who were rebellious towards Christ, he goes to a cross and dies for them. And so if Jonah is not motivation for us to get ourselves together as it relates to people we don't like, Christ should be motivation for us. Because over 2,000 years ago, Christ dies on a cross for people that don't like him. People that do not want him People that do not want him as his savior, he dies for that person. And that is the beauty that we see in the Lord. And so if you're in here going, man, I can't believe I've been trying to get pregnant and the person I don't like just got pregnant. 
Like if you're in this room and you're going, I can't believe that person got a promotion and, and I got laid off. If you're in this room and you're wrestling through stuff like that, you're, you're in this room and you're saying, how does the husband that left me be able to get remarried and things look well? We need to wrestle in our heart. Because what we're really deep down inside, if you press deep down inside, what you'll see is that many of us lack grace. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Some of you in this room have unresolved issues as it relates to grace. Now, I want to be honest. Some of us in this room have, we have all right to be angry. Maybe you're in here and you're angry over someone who did you wrong and they actually did do you. Like, you're not wrong in, in what you feel. Some of us in here have been holding on to that for years. We've been harboring, I would go so far as hatred in our heart. The scripture tells us that he was hot. He was burning. He was not happy at the fact that the people who historically have done his people wrong, he was upset that they were now being saved and shown grace. And some of you in this room are holding on to things that really you need to let go. And what it's doing is it's harboring anger in your heart. Let it go today. I don't want to call an altar call. You don't need to come up here. You know who you are. If you're in this room and you, and, and the, the message is talking directly to your unforgiveness, your lack of being able to let it go. Pray that you would let it go today. I'm not saying that you have to be buddy-buddy. I'm not saying that you have to be best friends. But you're in bondage by holding on to hatred. You're in bondage. Like you're binding yourself up by not letting it go. And here's the reality. Maybe it's somebody close. It's a child or a close family member. I'm going to pray for you today. Unresolved issues that's hindering you. Father, I want to pray for everyone in this room that, that is honest enough to say, that that's me. I am Jonah in the text. I didn't realize it. I thought physically I was disobedient, but I thought two chapters ago I got myself together because Jonah got himself together. But truth is, chapter four hits us hard today. And the fact that many of us have these hurts in our life really is just a pointer to Genesis chapter three, that the, that the world was broken because of sin and the residue of it still remains. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ, which gives us the ability. You, God, were able to forgive us. Not saying you, you dealt with our sin by sending Jesus Christ, but you forgave us. People that hated you, people that weren't in love with you, people that didn't have affections for you. That's all of us in this room. We all walked in darkness, but you forgave us. Would you give us the ability this morning to forgive May Jonah caution us today of harboring 
discontentment and hatred in our heart. In Christ's name, amen.